Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. And as I note, you can also email evidencebasedradio at gmail.com. And so, yeah, tonight we're going to go a lot lighter on the COVID reporting and uh, then we're gonna visit. We're gonna visit with some uh, old friends of the show. Uh, it just turned out that there were stories about all sorts of uh, subjects that I am traditionally very interested in talking about. So it works out really well. We'll do some COVID, and then we'll spend some time with some fun stories. So, though, first off, um, I do want to talk about a new study of nearly 350,000 adults, which found that, frankly, unsurprisingly, that masks work. Um, And so we'll have some caveats afterwards, but let's just talk about the research. The research was conducted in Bangladesh, which, as if you were listening last week, you would know, has been dealing with a real... Uh, influx of Delta variant outbreaks and is really having trouble. Now, the study found that villages that had high levels of mask wearing adoption had both lower rates of COVID-like symptoms and also confirmed past infections compared to villages which had low adoption rates. It was even more stark when villages were given free surgical masks rather than cloth masks as well. And so while some observations, while, while some observational trials have shown mixed results for mask wearing, and basically an observational study is that you look at data and you, you try to extrapolate what is the reason for the outcome. So um, observational studies are often plagued with the idea that it could be anything. It could be a change in diet. It could be a series of other things. And so they're not considered basically um, as strong of evidence as randomized trials. And so this study was conducted by a group of scientists who teamed up with public health advocacy organizations and the Bangladesh government And it represented a massive randomized trial, which, again, is the gold standard. Um, Well, this is probably the silver standard because it wasn't double blind, but uh, (laughs) it's definitely better than an observational study. And so the team have released a working paper on their research. And um, it was... um, Put out through the nonprofit Innovations for Poverty Action. And so, a single region of the country with 600 villages and a combined 350,000 adults were included in the trial. The researchers looked at villages and assigned them into pairs based on similarities such as population density. Each pair would then be randomly assigned to one of two conditions. In intervention conditions, the researchers would distribute free masks, 
have local leaders encourage mask wearing, and even sometimes award financial prizes to villages with widespread adoption. In two-thirds of these villages, the masks given out were surgical, with the remaining being cloth. In the other pair of the two villages, the researchers simply observed the villages and did not interact with them in any significant way. As far as intervention or um, any kind of education. They found that by the end of the trial, 42% of residents in villages that had interventions wore masks regularly compared to 13% in non-intervention villages. Overall, the number of residents reporting symptoms in the weeks following went down by 11% in intervention villages compared to the cold control group. The average number of people with antibodies went down 9%. And when you look at only surgical mask villages, the results were even more pronounced, with 12% versus 5% for reducing symptoms, and for those who were over 60, a 35% reduction for those in surgical mask-wearing villages. Now, they also found that people who wore masks were actually more likely, not less likely, to practice social distancing and that kind of preventative measure. And so uh, there's been a lot of uh, concern over the last year that, you know, mask wearing encourages people to just gather closer together and, you know, it really uh, doesn't help with people social distancing, which is better. And so, again, here they found that people who wear masks were more likely to remember, oh, yeah, I'm also supposed to be practicing social distancing when I can. Of course, as with much that we've talked about, this is a preprint, so it's not yet peer-reviewed, and it was also conducted before the emergence of the Delta variant. So it's hard to directly correlate it to the present situation, but it does suggest that masks are indeed effective at reducing spread. Remember, the best villages only got up to 43% compliance, so if you can reach much higher compliance rates, might even be smaller of infection. And so I know anecdotally, for instance, that the colleges, um, I know that Amherst College maintained a strict masking regimen for the community this past year, and it's actually managed to keep infections rates pretty much in the single digits or at, at most and at zero for large stretches of the pandemic. So uh, if you look at their dashboard, you can see that they've had a very, very small infection rate. And so they were very um, conservative. Um, I know that they had a lot of um, strictures on where people could go. But of course, you know, you can't manage everyone all the time. And so I'm sure that some of those rules were broken, and yet they still managed a very low rate of infection. Um, and of course, that's with UMass right down the road, which, uh, especially early in the pandemic, uh, didn't do so great, um, which is, you know, not necessarily the fault of UMass as an institution. Uh, it's a problem of there being, you know, a lot of people in a place where you don't have any control over them because they're living off campus and they're living together and, um, you know, just the nature of 
university students, it's hard to be able to contain them. Um, and of course, we know, unfortunately, that younger people have had a harder time uh, in a lot of ways taking COVID-19 seriously because they're much less likely to get serious complications from it. Um, but again, they are part of a community. And so hopefully, uh, especially with Delta, they will be taking it more seriously. Um, at least around here. Um, sorry, I was just thinking, I know someone who's teaching in Florida right now and, uh, how, uh, uncomfortable they are with the fact that many students are not wearing masks and there's not a lot they can do about that. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, um, an issue and we just need to try and to make sure that we just keep reinforcing the idea that masks work, social distancing works, vaccines work. Um, and so, yeah, we'll talk about that in a second as well. So study author Jason Abeluk, a health and behavioral economist at Yale University, addressed some of the potential caveats of his study. For instance, the antibody effect was found was only found in people over 50. Ablick argues that this may simply be a data collection artifact because only 40% of residents opted to get tested. They also suggest that greater effects could be seen from Delta, which again has a much higher infection rate than the Alpha variant. And having seen effects with just moderate upticks in habitual mask wearing, the effect again might be magnified with greater amounts of adherence. A result should not be taken to imply that masks can prevent only 10% of COVID-19 cases, let alone 10% of COVID-19 mortality, they wrote in the paper. Our intervention induced 29 more people out of every 100 to wear masks, with 42% of people wearing masks in total. The total impact impact with near universal masking, perhaps achievable with alternative strategies or stricter enforcement, may be several times larger than our 10% estimate. And so again, one of the big takeaways too, is that it suggested that surgical masks are a better option than cloth masks, and we should perhaps begin phasing out cloth masks. While cloth masks clearly reduce symptoms, we cannot reject that they have zero or only a small impact on symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infections, they wrote in the paper. And so, yeah, I've actually uh, decided probably that I am going to switch over. Um, I have a bunch of cloth masks um, and they're, you know, they're kind of nice, but uh, I'd rather be safer. So... Um, I am going to be wearing surgical masks now, probably, um, whenever I can. And so, yeah, it's definitely, um, something to think about. And of course, you know, wearing a cloth mask is still much better than wearing no mask. Um, so if you can't afford, you know, boxes of surgical masks, uh, but you have a, uh, cloth mask, that is still fine, and um, it will definitely still give you more protection than nothing. And so, again, let's talk about the vaccine. 
So again, not only do masks work, vaccines work. And they work in several ways. Uh, they prevent infection, they reduce the severity of infection, and a new study suggests that they may half the chance of having long-term COVID infections. And so this is research from the UK published in the Lancet Infectious Diseases, and it takes its data from the COVID Symptoms Study. And so this study is a project that attempts to keep track of the pandemic's spread with the use of a free mobile app. The app was launched in May 2020 and currently has around 4.5 million unique users, according to uh, the producers. App users can report COVID-like symptoms and details such as whether they've tested positive and their vaccination status. Using data collected up until July 2021, they found around 8,000 users confirmed a breakthrough infection. Now that sounds like a lot, but remember 4.5 million users, so that's less than 1% of the total sample. Um, And that's just of the people who were in the sample. I don't think all 4.5 million were in the sample. I don't remember exactly how many were in it. Sorry. Um, So additionally, only around 2,000 of those reported an infection a week or more after the second dose. Vaccinated people were significantly less likely to report having needed hospitalization, much more likely to have no symptoms at all, and reported less symptoms on average than the unvaccinated. Only around 5.2% reported having symptoms beyond 28 days, compared to 11.4% of the control group. Vaccinations are massively reducing the chances of people getting long COVID in two ways. First, by reducing the risk of any symptoms by 8 to 10 fold, and then by having the chances of any infection turning into long COVID if it does happen. Study author Tim Spector, a researcher at King's College London and lead investigator of the project, said in a statement released by the university, Whatever the duration of symptoms, we are seeing that infections after two vaccinations are also much milder, so vaccines are really changing the disease and for the better. Now, this is one of the first studies to look at long COVID in breakthrough infections, so more data points may come later. And so long-term COVID infections have been found in around 10 to 30% of those infected. And so part of the problem with quantifying the actual numbers is that many of the symptoms of COVID can be mimicked by other respiratory infections, and they can also occur for reasons other than COVID infection. So uh, part of the problem with COVID is that it has a lot of kind of generic uh, (laughs) um, symptoms. So, you know, fatigue, uh, cough, runny nose, um, fever, all of those things can be caused by other things. So if you have if you have some other infection two weeks later, you might think that it's long-term COVID, but it might have been two distinct uh, events or infections. And so it's kind of hard to quantitate, to quantitatively say, you know, X number of people have long-term COVID infections. Um, there certainly are people who do have them, as far as we can tell, but we just can't tell exactly how many that is. 
But again, regardless of the specific numbers, overall, every study that has looked at vaccines suggests that getting the vaccine is an extremely effective deterrent to severe illness and death, and a very good deterrent to initial infection. And um, before I go on, I just wanted to take a moment to talk about uh, antibody load. So I read a couple of things about um, the way that people are looking at antibody loads. And so there was one um, report that looked at two different um, versions of the mRNA vaccine, and they found different uh, levels of vaccine load in people who had gotten them, um, you know, they found more in one than in the other. But I think that all of the things that I've read about antibody load is that it's not a great indicator of how your body is going to react to COVID-19. And so not all of the antibodies that you have in your system from the vaccine are going to be neutralizing ones. And so it might be that one produces more neutralizing antibodies antibodies, and less other antibodies. And so you want to be careful about people saying, oh, well, this one gives you more antibodies because you don't really want that. And also as you get away from having been vaccinated, you're going to have less antibodies in your system anyways because your system is going to switch over to long-term protection, which is that it kind of stores the um, geometries of COVID-19 so that if COVID-19 tries to infect you, it can then say, oh, we know what that is and mount a defense. But you would not be thought to have tons of antibodies raging through your blood if you are you know, um, fairly far out from when you had your vaccination and haven't been exposed. Um, so yeah, just, there's been a lot of stuff about that lately. And, um, we're actually going to talk about it a little bit more when we once again, revisit the idea of booster shots. Um, but, (laughs) uh, let's talk about Hawaii for a moment though. And so, Delta is such a concern that Hawaii, a state built on tourism, has actually asked for vacationers to stay home until November. Hawaii has had one of the lowest rates of infection due to strict quarantine rules and its, well, relative isolation, and it has the fifth highest uh, vaccination rate in the country. Um, I'm pretty sure Massachusetts comes in as fourth. Uh, third or fourth, I think we're fourth. But it's seen a worrying uptick in cases as of late. And that actually led Governor David Ige to uh, tell the Star Advertiser, I have asked that all non-essential travel for residents and visitors to Hawaii be delayed or curtailed through the end of October. I've been on calls with all the airlines and I've talked with the hotel industry to support this requirement. I think it's important that we reduce the number of visitors coming here to the islands. And so, yeah, definitely a big deal. This was also part of a 
article that talked about someone who was trying to enter Hawaii with a forged uh, vaccination card. And it was just so frustrating. Um, just get vaccinated <laughs> and then you'll be all set. Um, but yeah. And so, of course, this comes as another politiz- politicization a hard word to say, of the pandemic is occurring. So we had plenty of it happening in the last couple of years, uh, last year and a half, um, with people trying to downplay it and trying to not give people the best ability to study it and track it and uh, contain it. And now the pendulum is swinging, I think, towards the other side because, frankly, politicians are not scientists. Hardly any politicians in our government are even medical doctors. And so... um and some of those have dubious uh, ideas about medicine, so uh, not a qualifier in the uh, long run. But uh, yeah, so we're swinging back the other way now with the White House announcing that they want to clear the way for all adults to receive a booster shot by September 20th. Now, as I've said many, many times on this show, The problem with that is that there is still no consensus on whether or not this is actually needed and whether our time would be better spent trying to get the unvaccinated their first dose rather than protected people a third dose. We've got lots of vaccine. At the moment, we don't have a lot of evidence of reduced vaccine effectiveness said ACIP committee member Beth Bell, a doctor and clinical professor of global health at the University of Washington in Seattle. And so in fact, two FDA employees, Marion Gruber and Phil Krauss, have announced that they are leaving the agency. Gruber has worked at the FDA for 32 years and is head of the FDA's Office of Vaccine Research and Review. Krauss has been at the agency for over 10 years and is the deputy director of the office. Now, part of this is probably due to a bit of a turf war between FDA and CDC, but uh, all signs kind of point to the fact that the announcement from the White House seems to have been the deciding factor in their decisions to leave. Um, Both men basically have... Uh, made it clear that they are frustrated and don't want to uh, continue to have what they are offering as opinions ignored. Um, And so the White House wants this. They do still have to get uh, FDA um, approval, CDC approval. And uh, so maybe, hopefully, There will be some uh, stoppage on this because the science is not good. Um, The only science that suggests that boosters should help has actually been questioned. So there was um, a study out of Israel and Israel has been aggressively um, giving people third doses 
and have said, look, then they have more antibodies. But as I was just saying before, having a lot of antibodies in your system isn't necessarily an indicator that you are better protected than someone who doesn't, who got the vi- who got the vaccine as well. And so it's a little bit frustrating. Um, one would hope that, you know, people would actually start listening to scientists since this is kind of a big science thing. Um, but of course, people heard the word uh, booster. And of course, we all know why they heard the word booster in America, which is because the head of Moderna, uh, basically started advertising it, uh, like three months ago. Um, <laughs> maybe not quite that long ago, but, um, yeah, because of course, uh, they make the vaccine. And so, yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. Um, I would still urge you to wait until the science suggests that you should get a booster. Um, Again, there are so many people who haven't gotten any vaccine, both here in America and in the rest of the world. And I think that it's it's very frustrating to me that we're not uh, working really a lot harder on converting vaccine hesitant people to uh, get the vaccine. And um, yeah, I mean, I was looking at some of the numbers and they're just... I mean, the South is struggling really, really badly. I mean, Alabama has the lowest vaccination rate in the country and um, their hospitals are just on the verge of collapse because so many people are in the hospital. And I also read, um, started to read an article about um, how insurance companies and businesses are actually thinking um, about trying to recoup some of the money that they are having to spend on people who get COVID despite the fact that they could have gotten vaccinated and didn't, which I'm of course two minds about because in some ways I think, yes, that is absolutely fair and reasonable because people have had the opportunity, they have been told that it is safe and free. But of course, I also know that this is not necessarily, uh, almost certainly not, uh, let's be frank, because the uh, companies and uh, insurances are trying to uh, encourage more people to get vaccinated. It's because they want to make some of their money back. Um, And they think that charging people who didn't get the vaccine and got COVID is uh, something that they can get away with uh, politically because people like me will say, well, yeah, that makes sense. Um, But it's really just, again, to line corporate uh, pockets, in my humble opinion. Um, And so, yeah, I don't see it as some sort of altruistic uh, suggestion so that we can start uh, convincing people to get the vaccine. It's really just they're thinking, well, you know, we waived things because we waived fees early on because, you know, people didn't have a vaccine. But now that there's a vaccine available, why should we waive fees anymore? And um, yeah, it's it's real frustrating. 
um, from both sides of it. And, um, you know, I will just give a shout out uh, here to the idea of single payer health care and getting uh, capitalism out of health care because capitalism and health care are not they're not good bedfellows. Uh, not at all. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> all right. We are going to stop for a moment. Uh, we are done with COVID for tonight. Um, and uh, it did probably go a little bit longer than I meant it to. So sorry about that. But uh, on the other side of the PSAs and show promos, we will talk about lots of fun things, I promise. So do come back. Do stay tuned, in fact. Uh, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio on WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Join hosts Jacqueline and Mari on Alternative Lately every Sunday from 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ, LP, Northampton. Every week, we bring you the latest in alternative pop rock music. We'll highlight underappreciated talent and undiscovered artists, bands, and collectives you didn't know you needed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Lately. If you're looking for new current music, start here. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Steve in Lakewood, Colorado wants to know, what's the proper way to dispose of used household batteries? Well, Steve, alkaline batteries, the most widely used type, contains zinc, which can harm certain aquatic species. But federal regulators, unlike some states, do not consider them dangerous enough to require special treatment. Check out earth911.org to see if anyone collects alkaline batteries in your area. If not, look up Battery Solutions or the Big Green Box who will recycle them for a fee. Rechargeable batteries, like those found in billions of cell phones, should definitely be recycled because they contain dangerous heavy metals like cadmium and lithium. However, thousands of stores nationwide take them back. Visit calltorecycle.org to find one near you. Finally, honor the mantra, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Fewer gadgets is a sure cure for disposal angst. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Radio should be fun. So on Sundays, we get weird. Mad Hatter's Mix. Challenge Normal from 1 to 3. Connect the dots with me from Tori Amos to Weird Al to Muse to the Proto Men to Monty Python and back to Tori Amos. Sketches, stand up, some kickin' tunes, Mad Hatter's Mix. Sundays at 1 on 103.3 WXOJ, Valley Free Radio. 
it's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I meet with our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia. I bring you a wide selection of Asian artists, combining genres like rock, pop, hip-hop, and R&B every Saturday at 12 a.m. with a repeat show on Mondays at 1 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as promised, we are putting COVID behind us for the evening and turning to another reoccurring update first. So NASA researchers believe that Perseverance has successfully sampled a rock core. Now, they received an image from Percy that clearly showed a rock in the drill's collection space. However, a second picture had too poor of lightning of lighting to confirm the sample was still on board. So a lot of people have been saying, woohoo, we did it. But, you know, NASA wants to be cautious. So um, those headlines are a tiny bit premature. Uh, almost certainly this has happened. But NASA notes that obtaining additional imagery prior to proceeding with the ceiling and story of Mars rock sample is an extra step the team opted to include based on its experience with the rover's sampling attempt on August 5th. Although the Perseverance mission team is confident that the sample is in the tube, images and optimal lighting conditions will confirm its presence. So again, the initial set of images from the Mastcam Z showed a core within the sample tube. By the way, in the pictures, it looks quite big, but apparently the cores are actually just slightly thicker than a pencil. Um, and so after this first set of pictures, the rover began a maneuver called percuss to ingest, which is a great uh, phrase. <laughs> and so that vibrates the drill bit and tube five times, each for a one second interval. This is meant to clear the, uh, the lip of the tube of any residue, but it can also knock the sample further into the tube, which would make it harder to see. And so after the maneuver, the Mastcam Z images failed to see inside of the tube. The project got its first core rock under its belt, and that's a phenomenal accomplishment, said Jennifer Trosper, project manager at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The team determined a location and selected and cored a viable and scientifically valuable rock. We did what we came to do. We will work through this small hiccup with the lighting conditions in the images and remain encouraged that there is sample in this tube. Now, unfortunately, the new set of images were scheduled for various times today, Friday the 2nd, but the images won't be returned to Earth until tomorrow morning, so I can't say for certain, but I think everything went well. NASA thinks everything went well, but they're just, you know, they are doing their due diligence. And so it turns out that even if they can't get better pictures, they can still use the sampling and caching systems 
volume probe as a final confirmation that they have indeed succeeded in securing a sample of Martian rock to be returned in the future for detailed study. So that is very exciting. The rock the core was sampled from is around the size of a briefcase and is part of a stretch of a ridgeline nicknamed Citadel. The spot was chosen because it was believed to have more stable rock than the previous site, the crater floor fractured rough. Because as we know, that first site, uh, when they tried to drill, basically the rock just disintegrated. And so they weren't actually able to get a core because the rock just crumbled. Now, the hope is to eventually find evidence of something like stromatolites. Um, and so stromatolites are rocky formations caused by bacteria. And so the bacteria basically form mats. And then over time, those mats layer on one another. And eventually they um, are uh, converted to stone. And then you have these, um, you know, fossils of these bacterial mats. And so here on Earth, there's some of the earliest traces of life. So we figure it might be some of the earliest traces of life on Mars. So yeah, that would be cool. Um, I don't know that I've mentioned it, but I'm still on the fence about whether or not uh, Mars potentially had life. Um, it's really interesting. It definitely had a it definitely had a moment where it was wet and uh, presumably had some sort of atmosphere and could absolutely have uh, potentially uh, formed life. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting uh, pursuit and I think it's totally worth it. I definitely would love them to find something so that we would know definitively. Um, but I don't know. I don't have a real opinion yet, except it's intriguing and also uh, potentially very hard to find. And so I don't know. Anyways, let's move on now and check in with another favorite around here, the tardigrade. Did you know that tardigrades walk around? I did not know this. Uh, they're usually shown in water uh, in videos I've seen swimming around, but they can actually walk and actually rather well. Apparently, they're not only spectacular at surviving the extremes, but they also display a remarkable robustness in their day-to-day -day activities, according to research published today in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And so they are among the smallest animals to have legs. Uh, and so most animals at that scale maneuver around by thrashing, wiggling, or slithering. But tardigrades walk. They just walk around. And it doesn't sound all that impressive until you realize that tardigrades are small enough that physics works differently for them than it does for, say, even a, a mite. Viscous and inertial forces make it much harder for them to move through substrates like sand or soil. An analogy would be if we had to walk through a vat of something really thick and viscous, say honey or peanut butter, Jasmine Narati, a fellow at Rockefeller University's Center for Studies in Physics and Biology, explained. So we might expect that ideal strategies for tardigrades would be different than for larger animals, she said, adding, 
I even walk differently immersed in a swimming pool than I do on the sidewalk. Now, if you're thinking, but wait, how did they have legs if they have no bones? Congratulations. That's also what I thought for the first uh, moment. But of course, this isn't actually an insurmountable problem. Uh, Sea cucumbers, sea pigs, um, and other marine invertebrates manage to get around on legs despite having Uh, despite not having an internal bone structure. But again, that is on the macro scale. Um, And so, yeah, this is very crazy. When we walk, we tend to push off the ground with our back legs to spring ourselves forward. And this is possible because we have rigid bones that act kind of like a pole to vault over, Narati explained. But if that pole is a noodle, we have to use different strategies. So the researchers did what anyone in their position would do, grab a bunch of tardigrades and record them walking and then watch it over and over again. Trust me, just the tiny video clip I watched is mesmerizing. Uh, (laughs) It was really cool. And so Nimradi explains that the tardigrades use their claws like grappling hooks to actually grab the substrate and pull their bodies forward. And so in this case, they actually rely on the fact that the substrate is stiff and won't slip away underneath them. And so once they figured this out, the researchers changed the stiffness of the substrate and found that it was indeed, uh, that it indeed affected how the animals walked. They also have a regular stepping pattern, which surprised the researchers, uh, who expected them to be, well, more clumsy, clumsy and awkward. Again, this picture just of a tardigrade just walking across the screen is just fascinating. And so uh, Nimradi explains that this doesn't make And this makes sense. If you think about it more carefully, there are thousands of tardigrade species living and moving through almost every environment imaginable. That's pretty successful. And you don't get that far being bad at locomotion, which is crucial for finding food, mates, everything important for survival. And so they walk at around half their body length per second when unhurried and can sprint up to two body lengths per second when, well, sprinting. (laughs) Oddly, they did not change their gait depending on the speed. And what's more, their gait resembles that of insects, which are 500,000 times their size. Now, of course, further research will be needed to determine if the tardigrades and insects inherited this gait from a common ancestor or developed it independently through convergent evolution. The answer could yield new insights into the evolution of multi-legged gaits, and the biological circuits that control the movement. Besides, once again, it is just plain amazing. (laughs) I highly recommend uh, looking up tardigrades walking and just, oh my God, it was, they look a little bit like a naked mole rat, um, but they have more legs. Uh, But yeah, that's what I kept thinking, that it looked like a naked mole rat walking through a tube, Um, which, you know... I'm not terribly a fan of naked mole rats. I know a lot of people think they're like, you know, so ugly, they're cute. But um, the tardigrade was definitely fascinating uh, to watch it sort of just stalking along. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And of course, you know, 
Part of this is that, as always, we might learn a thing or two that could also have technological applications. So there's no need to reinvent the wheel when nature has already been field testing options for millions of years. And so, yeah, speaking of that and another old friend around here, it leads directly from uh, that comment about biomimicry. And so, yeah, the mantis shrimp. And so the mantis shrimp's punch has been recreated in a robot by an interdisciplinary team of roboticists, engineers, and biologists. A recent paper by Harvard researchers published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences outlines the creation of a robot that can mimic the biomechanical punch of the mantis shrimp, which can reach an equivalent force of a 22 caliber bullet. We are fascinated by so many remarkable behaviors we see in nature, in particular when these behaviors meet or exceed what can be achieved by human-made devices, said senior author Robert Wood, a roboticist at Harvard University's John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. The speed and force of mantis shrimp strikes, for example, are a consequence of a complex underlying mechanism. By constructing a robotic model of a mantis shrimp striking appendage, we are able to study these mechanisms in unprecedented detail. Now, the same team previously constructed a robotic bee, or robo-bee, capable of untethered flight. They've since improved on that design with the robo-bee X-wing, the lightest insect-scale robot to have achieved sustained untethered flight. Um, and untethered just means it's not connected to anything. It is able to, you know, fly on its own. And so now they've turned to the not-so-humble mantis shrimp. And of course, we all remember that a mantis shrimp is not actually a shrimp uh, or a mantis, <laughs> but rather a stomatopod. And so as a recap, the mantis shrimp, of which there are 450 or so known species, can be lumped roughly into two categories, spearers and smashers. And they're pretty much as advertised. Spearers feature spear-like appendages at the end of their arms, and smashers have round hammer-like claws or raptorial appendages, raptorial in the sense of wrapping on uh, wood. And so the strikes can be so fast and powerful that they produce cavitation bubbles that create a shockwave and can serve as a follow-up strike, which can stun or even kill the prey. Sometimes they even produce sonoluminescence, a flash of light produced by the collapse of the cavitation bubbles. And the way they do this is not through incredible muscle strength, but from a spring-loaded mechanism. Some insects have similar odd anatomies, such as legs that have kind of biomechanical gears, so it's not unheard of. And um, there are other things such as, you know, frogs and stuff. And so in the mantis shrimp, the muscles pull on a saddle-shaped structure in the arm, which causes it to bend and store potential energy. When prey approaches, the energy is released with the swinging of the club-like arms. It is a latch-mediated spring actuation, or LAMSA, 
and small muscle tendons called sclerites serve as the latch. And again, this is a fairly common mechanism in the natural world, shared by, again, frog's legs, uh, trap jaw ant mandibles, and exploding plant seeds, among others. Um, trap jaw ants are also another really weird <laughs> uh, evolutionary uh, just conundrum as to uh, how these things evolve sometimes. Anyways, what's unique about the mantis shrimp is that there is a one millisecond delay between the unlatching and the actual snapping action. When you look at the striking process on an ultra high speed camera, there is a time delay between the sclerites release and the appendage fi fires, said co-first author uh, Patrick Hyun, a postdoctoral fellow at SEAS. It is as if a mouse triggered a mouse trap, but instead of it snapping right away, there was a noticeable delay before it snapped. There is obviously another mechanism holding the appendage in place, but no one has been able to analytically understand how the other mechanism works. Because the mantis shrimp lacks muscles to produce the lightning quick strikes, biologists suggested that the sclerites are responsible for the initial unlatching, but that the geometry of the arm structure itself then serves as a secondary latch to control the arm's movement. The idea is that the linkage design itself is such that you're able to actually store energy and release it with just one input motion, co-first author Emma Steinhardt told Ars Technica. It's this geometric latch that is releasing all the stored energy. The team set out to model this hypothesis by constructing a robot that mimics the geometric structure. They used a manufacturing process that is actually inspired by pop-up books, and which had previously been used to build the Robo-B. The process entails cutting designs from flat sheets, layering them, and bonding the layers with glue, and finally folding them into the desired shapes. Artificial muscles are made with piezoelectric actuators, and thin plastic hinges mimic joints for rotational movement. They then conducted a series of tests, both in the air and underwater. They discovered that there were four distinct striking phases, and that it was indeed the geometry that produces the rapid acceleration after the initial unlatching by the sclerites. They weren't able to get quite as fast as a mantis shrimp, but they didn't do too bad, with the appendage moving in the air with an equivalent burst of speed of a car going from 0 to 58 miles per hour in just 4 milliseconds. Now, they also found that the medium can affect the process as well. A previous study found that mantis shrimp punch at half speed in the air, suggesting the animals have precise control over its striking behavior, depending on the surrounding medium. And so they found that their experiments showed an added mass effect in water-based experiments. In fluid mechanics, when you move really quickly, you're actually pushing a heavier mass, noted Hian. The short delay between unlatching and the snap is likely, is likely a crucial feature enabling repeated and extreme use without the wear and tear of contact latching mechanisms, the authors wrote. And so the team hopes to continue to work together in an interdisciplinary manner in order to explore further species such as leaping frogs or, again, those trap jaw ants. 
Okay. So, yeah, very cool. And I think that biomimicry is one of those places where there is a lot of uh, room for, uh, you know, development. And so, again, like I was saying, why reinvent the wheel? You can look at animals that have solved problems through a basically a process of hundreds and thousands and millions of trials and error and uh, definitely can, in fact, be able to make that work for you. And so, yeah, I think that is very cool. And so one of the other things that they were looking at was, um, you know, those trap jaw ants are really fascinating. So they have these jaws that open up hugely and they actually kind of are spring loaded, uh, like they were talking about and they wait for prey to come and they are able to extremely quickly snap them closed. And so, yeah, it is, um, very, very interesting. Um, one of my favorite things is actually those, uh, exploding seeds. So they have this trigger mechanism where, um, some of them are actually triggered by, um, uh, rainfall. And so the rain, they have a sort of hair trigger. And when the rain hits it, the, um, outer covering opens up and that causes the, uh, spores or the seeds to shoot out. And, um, if you ever see slow-mo video of that, that is totally amazing. Um, so yeah, I think that though, those are always really cool things. Um, you know, I do tend to say like, I really just want to know how it works. I don't really want to talk about, um, biomimicry, but I'm, I'm coming around is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, because I think it is true that, you know, uh, we are going to continue to make uh, new and interesting robots and uh, all sorts of, um, you know, electronics and things like that. So um, I'd rather uh, something like a robot that mimics a uh, octopus than something else. I think that would be fun. Um, I don't know. I'm rambling, <laughs> as you can tell. And um, yeah. I should stop and say goodnight. So um, have a good week. I hope you have a good Labor Day weekend. And thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.